The Old Testament reading from Jeremiah 2, 4 through 8, 31, 1 and 2, 15 and 20. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me, that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruits and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priest did not ask, where is the Lord? At that time, declares the Lord, I will be God of all the families of Israel, and they will be my people. This is what the Lord says. The people who survive the sword will find favor in the wilderness. I will come to give rest to Israel. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight, though I often speak against him? I still remember him, therefore my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord. be with you all. Wow. <laughs> scared, scared me a little bit. Um, we, are in, um, we are starting on a journey through at least parts of Jeremiah. It's a rather long book, and we only have eight weeks of Lent. And so we're going to kind of take just snippets that I hope will give you an overview of the book. And I'm, I'm really excited about this. I've never taught through Jeremiah before, and so it required a little bit more work this week in getting prepared, not only for this sermon, but for what comes next and the next sermons. And I think that you're going to be really encouraged by our study of Jeremiah, but not in a a straightforward, expected way. Jeremiah, in a sense, tells it slant, like what Emily Dickinson says about poetry, that it comes in a back door, it comes at you in a way you don't expect and maybe that you're wanting. And I think that you're going to be encouraged, but it's going to take a little work to get there. And you may find yourself making some realizations about who God is that maybe you've never made before, maybe that are new. And I hope that's true. So let me pray for us as we uh, look at this first part. God, would you be with us? Would you guide us wherever we find ourselves on the spectrum of faith or non-faith, convicted believer or searcher, questioner. I pray that for all of us, you would find Jeremiah is addressing things that are common to the human condition, hopes and fears that we all have. And I pray that you would help us to understand as he locates the answers, not simple answers, but locates the trajectory of where an answer might be found in you that we would go with him, that we would follow him, and that we would find our lives made more coherent by locating them in you and in your story. And so, Father, I pray that 
you would do that, not through my words or through my power, but through the power of your words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You probably know this if you've been around here for a while, but Eugene Peterson is one of my uh, celebrity pastor crushes. I really like him. Uh, he's the guy that I kind of like follow whenever he is in the news, whenever he says anything. I got to find out what has he said. I love this guy. And he answers uh, questions sort of off the cuff in an interview fashion in a way that I would like to be able to write. He just has a way with words. And he was interviewed one time, and he was asked um, sort of as a follow-up, so as a pastor, you see grace in a lot of unlikely places. It shows up in unexpected places. And he says, yeah, my job is not to solve people's problems. It's not to make them happy. In fact, most of the people in the Bible aren't happy, but they're joyful, and they're peaceful, and they have meaning. And he says this, the work of spirituality is learning to recognize where we are, the particular circumstances of our lives, to recognize grace and say, do you suppose that God wants to be with you in a way that does not involve changing your spouse or your your kids, but in changing you? I think the article was relating to parenting and that sort of thing. That's why the context is. But the the essence of it is, where is change located? And when we ask God to show up, where does he normally show up? Is it in the changing of our environment or is it in us? Is it in doing something in your life that maybe you could never experience without this pain and without this particular, this suffering? Sometimes I think all I do as a pastor is speak the word God in a situation where he hasn't been recognized, where it hasn't been said before. Jeremiah is a book, a prophecy that speaks God into circumstances where he's not perceived to be present to speak God in unexpected places where we don't, normally don't recognize him, and that's in pain and in trauma. And then finding him, learning to find him in the midst of trauma and then subsequently after trauma and pain. And Jeremiah here is speaking, as a way of background, he's speaking into very severe national trauma, Israel has experienced three invasions and three deportations, and they've experienced now decades of occupation from a foreign power. They're experiencing total societal collapse. But what complicates this issue further for them is their identity as the people of God, who supposedly have his heart and his love and his care, and he hasn't come through for them. Now, it's a little bit more complicated than that, as we'll see. But this national collapse that they're experiencing is made more severe and more complicated by this sense of religious collapse. Now, if you follow politics and if you follow the news, this probably seems immediately relevant to our day because conservative evangelical people have feared religious collapse for decades 
And I think it's not too strong of a statement to say that that anxiety, believing in that narrative, determined more or less the outcome of the last election. And so now you have liberal secular people who are fearing national (laughs) collapse. You have these two narratives, these two fears that are at work in our political world that seem, make Jeremiah seem that it's sort of ripped from the headlines. So there's this abstract sort of meta-level relevance to what we're doing in Jeremiah. But down at the personal level, which is where I think and hope most of this is going to settle, I think this book is going to challenge you. I think it'll probably confuse you. It's confused me at times. But I think ultimately it's going to comfort you. Because it's, in essence, survival literature. It's written to a nation, to a people, in a state of total national and religious collapse. And it's how to survive, how to find your way in the world, and actually how to find God in a world that seems to have collapsed around you. To see and to say God where he's not, or at least not perceived to be. Now, most Everyone in this room has experienced trauma at some level, of some sort, some more acute, some more devastating, but probably all of us could point to a time in our lives where something going on at least feels like total disaster at that moment. And in that moment, disaster, trauma, it calls everything into question, It wounds our heart and it wounds our mind. And it begins to deconstruct our worldview. Neurobiologists talk about violence as a form of trauma, that it creates neural pathways in our brain. It literally changes our brain and changes the way that we then respond to future trauma or even maybe expect trauma. It engraves itself on our mind in a a figurative, but also a very literal way. It can form a memory that in a way reaches into and possesses the future. Trauma is very powerful for creating ways of remembering that dictate how we move into the future. And as Israel was, people of faith have to wrestle with this at an even deeper level. Maybe we're especially troubled because we can't just say, well, we live in a natural material world and those are just the breaks of being a human trying to navigate this world. That's what happens. And we move through it. But if you're a person of faith, if you're a Christian, you can feel abandoned. You can feel this is not supposed to happen. If God loves me and wants my best... And then we work through and feel betrayed by these terrible circumstances. We question assumptions about his goodness or his sovereignty or maybe both and. And this adds another layer to the suffering. It can be re-traumatizing in a sense to try and work through God's abandonment on top of what is already a very difficult and painful situation. But apart from acute trauma, apart from utter disaster circumstantially in our life, life itself can be very difficult. 
It's hard, and we often feel exiled from our deepest selves, our truest selves, and sometimes most of our important dreams seem forever out of reach. Our relationships that provide the greatest joys and the greatest security can also be the place of our greatest wounds and hurts. And generally, our directors and writers have made a great deal of money meditating upon this darkness, this oblique sort of generalized darkness in our world. There's this sort of enigmatic divergence between what we want and what we think we should have and what we need and what we can actually get and what we can accomplish. So the problem, in other words, isn't always a specific threat, a tangible disaster, but it's just this sort of foreboding, this darkness inherent to our world, this vague sense that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. And maybe that's why You have to go 20 chapters into Jeremiah before he points out a a specific tangible threat. Up until then, he talks about this warning of this sort of mythical, cruel, foreboding, superhuman force threatening from the north. Does that sound familiar? Any Game of Thrones fans in here? All of a sudden, it sounds very derivative, right, of, of Jeremiah. John Snow's just a knockoff of Jeremiah. Settle down. I'm not trying to offend you. Don't get offended. I just wanted to work in a Game of Thrones reference once in my pastoral career to show how enlightened and woke I am. <laughs> Trauma and disaster and heartache and failure, just being disappointed, tired, bored with life can lead to responses of isolation. We want to be alone. We don't want to re-enter to relationship. It can lead to emotional numbness. It can lead to avoidance of memory and not dealing with the trauma in our past. It can lead ultimately to a loss of faith, a loss of orientation in the world. And I'm going to keep circling back to that Because I think Jeremiah does. And this should be a place to talk about that, to acknowledge that reality, and not to minimize it or shame it, but to say that this is an actual process that we have to go through. And sometimes the fact that we cling to a God who says he is present in our lives makes trauma more difficult when it comes. Now, this loss of faith was happening or had happened in Israel. In chapter 2, the the passage that Megan read, God, it seems, is pondering what this relationship with Israel used to be like, that he's reminiscing almost like a parent with an errant child, with a child that's now estranged, and remembering the good times and saying, oh my gosh, it used to be so good. And that's, it seems, where God is right now. And he says, you loved me like a bride. You followed me through the wilderness. It's that childlike trust, right, of a young child who follows a parent through the scary parts of life because they trust him. This, is, this used to be how it was with us. But now you do not ask, where is God? You do not ask, who brought us up from Egypt? 
that memory is no longer normative and determinative of our relationship. Instead, it's this memory of loss and trauma. They're shaken to their core. And this loss of faith, it actually saddens God. And he says, even the priests don't ask, where is the Lord? The priests, the pastors of Israel, don't know how to speak God into this place where he seems to be absent. Now, I think that we can have some level of empathy for these priests because maybe they didn't want to invoke God because him showing up in the way that Jeremiah is narrating the character and the person of God can be quite jarring and it can be quite scary. In fact, the prophets talk about this terrible exile and they name God as the cause of the exile. So, Maybe they just want to leave well enough alone and go about their business now in a material world. And this issue is very difficult and it's complicated because we need to know that on one level, these descriptions of God are coming out of a place of loss, out of a place of trauma and grief. And these people are in process and they're not necessarily giving us a systematic theology of how God is working and who he is and how he shows up in their lives. They're looking in this process of grief for a place to lay the blame, and they lay it squarely on God's lap. So these things aren't necessarily meant to be holistic, theologically accurate statements of God as the immediate cause of these events that led to the exile in sort of a mechanistic way, that he is behind this bloody, violent overthrow, because that would create some serious theological difficulties. But on the other hand, the text that we have does lay at least ultimate, if not immediate, responsibility to God. So how do we reconcile this? How do we work with this? Well, he's at least using this deportation, this exile, this trauma for a deeper purpose as a parent might use consequences and negative consequences and allow their child to endure them as a means to something greater, as a means to opening up a new level of being, a new world to them. So maybe in these passages which we'll encounter, we're not meant to see God driving the chariots that he's at that level of sort of mechanistic control over this exile. But that in a sense, he's stepping back after years and years of patience, and he is allowing these consequences to happen so that Israel will wake up to this brokenness in their relationship, so that they'll begin to see what's going wrong, that they will begin to feel life without him. And we continue to get this parental vibe. Hold that in your thought, maybe for the rest of the sermon, maybe for this entire series. But we continue to get this parental vibe in chapter 31, where it says, a voice is heard in Ramah. Now, this is a place name. Ramah is three 
three, <laughs> three places in the Bible. This one most likely is the one in Benjamin, which was a deportation site for Israelites when they were trucked off to Babylon. And that's why this phrase, Rachel weeping for her children, took on this relevance in a sort of illustrative way during the time of the Holocaust. Rachel weeping over six million of her children. I mean, what a powerful, tragic image. But this is how Jewish people at that time saw their national trauma. It was through the lens of Rachel, the mother of these northern tribes, weeping over their destruction, completely decimated. And it locates the grief of their experience, those tribes, in, figuratively, in Rachel's tears and in Ephraim's sorrow, his moaning. There's mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Rachel is lost in sorrow. She's at that level where she's impossible to console. Doesn't want to be consoled. Maybe you've been there. And maybe we're here, we're seeing this because it's when we see the impossibility of self-healing and self-consolation when we're able to see the world in all of its desolation and all of its broken promise where God can be spoken, where we can reach out to him, where he can move in in a vital and a new way. That we can perhaps experience life and joy in a way that begins to transcend our circumstances. Now this is where it gets difficult because it would make my job a whole lot easier if I could say, come to Jesus and life will be great. It will be amazing. Conversion brings an end to suffering and pain, and you will know every moment of your life, no matter what happens, that God is with you in an acute way, and it will make the trauma make sense. It doesn't. And I can't say that. For reasons that we can only glimpse at, In the Bible, that's not how God works. And sometimes all we have to cling to is promises. It's hope for something future. That the future, in fact, can be different and will be different. And perhaps more to the point that God does know our sorrow and he feels our sorrow. That he's not indifferent and in fact, if, if you're a parent, you know that your child's suffering hurts you at a deeper level than it does your child. And I don't mean the simplistic sort of thing that we talk about, corporal punishment. This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And the child's like, yeah, right, whatever. But deep hurt in your child's life, it hurts you at a deep level. And I think we see in Jeremiah, that that's true of God. That he feels his daughter Rachel's tears. That he hears and feels Ephraim's tears. And so as we get through this narration of trauma, and we get to chapter 31, and he's about to announce 
a little bit past midway through this new covenant that's going to happen. Jeremiah voices for God, a preparation for that. This is not all in one verse, if you're wondering, but in the first part of chapter 31, I will come to give rest to Israel. See, future, but something to hope in. I will come to give rest. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Don't let these circumstances dictate your discernment of my love. I have loved you with an everlasting love, and it will never run out. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. Sing for joy in the midst of sorrow. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because, why? Because I am Israel's father. I am Israel's parent. That's how God sees his loved people who are suffering. And I think God here, as we sort of come to the ending here, I need to land this plane. God as a parent embodies a kind of tough but tender posture that all of the best parents aspire to. Let me just comment on that and then we'll close. He's tough in that he allows his children to experience pain and trauma, the consequences of their choices, because this blame goes both ways. Israel blames up and God blames down in Jeremiah. And there's some responsibility that Israel has in their circumstances. But in that, he is playing the long game, right? Like a good parent does. A parent is willing to suffer their children's doubt and suffer their children's anger and questioning because they know that standing in that place with confidence and toughness, enduring it patiently, is actually the path to something. That they have a perspective that is beyond the reach of their child's perspective. And that allowing the child to live in the world as it is, and not how the child would dream it up to be, actually is the way to open up this beautiful, enduring, flourishing future. It's a way that they can be prepared to navigate loss and navigate suffering in the future without being completely collapsed by it. The things that we would rather shield our kids from in our tenderness, actually they need to often experience. And so we need this sort of toughness. And I think that's what God is doing here. But there's always a promise. Jeremiah weaves it throughout this prophecy, a coming time, a new thing, a future rescue that God's beginning in chapter 31, a renewal of his covenant love that despite Israel's wayward heart, Jeremiah speaks God into their presence, into their pain, and it opens up for them this ability to imagine a new world. But there's also not just a toughness, but there's a tenderness. And I think we need to skip ahead just a few weeks in our Lenten reflection because we get to the place in the Passion Week and Good Friday and the crucifixion where God actually makes himself tender, makes himself vulnerable to his children's hurts. And when Jesus is born, he is born into exile. God's own son has a price on his head. He's a refugee. And Matthew picks this up 
as a Jewish writer writing to Jewish people, and he remembers this passage way back in Jeremiah, and he narrates the birth of Jesus through that. That in some way, Rachel's weeping is connecting, connected to Jesus' weeping over his lost people. That Jesus is Emmanuel, that he is God with us. And therefore, he cares for our tears. Therefore, he moves toward the pain. Now, maybe this, and I just want to skip a few things because I need to end. Maybe this tough but tender posture is a way that we can learn to move through the world. Or it's what Brene Brown talks about, this strong back but soft front. That we can have a strong back moving through life in such a way that the circumstances don't dictate to us our internal life. That there's something there that is more resilient and more solid than our circumstances are. That doesn't always extinguish the feeling of pain, but it moves into it. And it eventually moves to a place of reconciliation that is still future. And therefore, we can become less reactive, more resilient, less vulnerable to slight, less fear, fearful of the unknown, because why you know who you are and you sit in that everlasting, God, everlasting love of God. But there's a soft front in that too, because we're recognizing our own move from exile to grace and Jesus' move from exile to grace. Lent moves us to peer into the darkness of our world and our own and to say, God, to recognize him, to speak the nevertheless of the gospel, that our trauma traumatizes God. The Bible speaks of exile and grace over and over so that when Jesus comes, we get it. And we see that in Jesus, it's God's own exile. That in Jesus, God goes to the far country. God opens himself up to suffering and to death in order ultimately to rescue us from it. There is a promised hope. There is a promised future. And our job is to try and find a way to bring that, to imagine that into our present. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to be tough yet tender. Give us that strong back and soft front so that we can be soft to the people in our world. That we can see their needs as our needs. That we can recognize their pain and their brokenness and our own pain and our own brokenness. No matter how the stratification and class system of our society would say that they are different that our experience with you would draw us into relationship with them, would draw us into the pain just as you move into ours. We pray that you would make that to be true for us and more experienced in our reality this Lenten season. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.